So here I am, some random dude on the internet, talking about DS9 in front of a generic snowy background that I bought. What's up, guys? <laughs> uh, this episode, this episode, so I have somewhat vague memories of this episode. Anytime I see the episode that's upcoming, I, I have a whole procedure of how I get ready for it. It's like, okay, first... I kind of think about it in my head. I'm like, okay, what do I want to talk about? What things come to mind? Sometimes the answer is nothing. Sometimes I'm like, well, I don't have anything to say about this. Or, uh, I mean, I guess I can talk about that. Sometimes I'm just bursting with stuff to talk about. Sometimes I can't wait to just sit and be like, oh, God, i got to talk about this, and i got to talk about this, and i got to talk about this. Um, and then usually I start doing my pre-research stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff, reading my own magazine, see if I can find anything from about this era. Since I'm going through sequentially, it's pretty easy. I just pick up the next magazine in the pile. Um, and then I go through whatever I've got online, and then I actually watch the episode now that I have my notes ready and take my notes live as I'm watching it. And then I immediately start recording as soon as I finish watching the episode. Now... That was just a little bit of a small insight into this and some of the amount of work I put into this show. Uh, but I, I wanted to bring that up because when I was doing all of that prep work, it was all about the storyteller, the thing that the episode is named for. It's like, okay, there's the Dalrock and, and, and there's the Syrah, and the Syrah has to be the one to, to push that back. You know, Brian's excellently chosen, and then there's this whole thing about how the guy's stupid. We'll get to that. Ah, blah, 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 right? And the Dalrock's actually not even there. It's not even a real thing. It's just a manifestation from an orb, which is never really properly explained, by the way. And never will be, uh, ever. Not counting the books, of course. Then I started up the episode, and the episode begins basically on the other plot. The plot I forgot even existed. The plot that nothing mentioned when I was doing my research, at least not in any significant detail. Everything was talking about the storyteller side of things. Now, it's funny, because I can kind of see why that is, but ultimately I found a few things really interesting about the other side of the plot in addendum to this one. It just kind of made me tilt my head a little bit. So, uh... <clears throat> Now's the time when I mention that this episode is not that great. It's lackluster. It's hard to call it actively bad, but it definitely doesn't fit. The A plot, the storyteller plot, is... It feels like... This is funny. It feels like they took a generic plot, grafted it onto the characters, and tried to make a little bit out of it other than just the thing. Other than, I'd say, about two and a half scenes. This could have happened to anyone on any science fiction show or even any fantasy show, and it wouldn't have changed anything. You'd have to change around a few words and a few pronouns, that's about it. The B-plot was very specifically and deliberately grafted on to Jake and Cisco, Or, excuse me, Jake and Nog. Excuse me, Jake and Nog. <laughs> but I could still see that affixing to multiple different characters. But I mentioned this... Oh, excuse me. I mentioned this because the B-plot... I feel was actually a DS9 plot, whereas the A plot, well, that's a TNG plot. Now, I mentioned this was funny that I say that, because this is actually literally a TNG plot. Now, I've actually already referenced this, but as a brief reminder, sometimes, actually most of the time, when you got a television show, eh, the process isn't what you'd normally think for most 
syndicated or general network television. Obviously, some shows vary this, and this isn't, this doesn't really apply anymore. Nowadays, television is, as I've said many times, different, and it's hard to properly enumerate the many ways in which television and the production of television is so different than it was 20 years ago. But 20 years ago, a studio's like, okay, actually this will be 30 years ago at this point, okay, we're doing a new science fiction show about Star Trek, and uh, script writers and script idea people will just write ideas or write scripts or write concepts for stories, and they will sell those and the rights to those stories to the studio. And the studio will buy those, usually for pretty cheap, and then basically, this is metaphoric, toss them into a giant vault. All right, there's our scripts. And then every now and again, the actual lead script writers or script designers or the actual people, you know, the mainliners or the head producers or the executive producers in charge of the show will either periodically, because we need, okay, let's look at our season. I know what I want to do with this episode, and I know what I want to do with this episode, and I got like three more episodes planned in here, so I need to fill this out with like 15 more episodes. So they'll go to that vault, again, metaphoric, and start flipping through these story ideas like, what do we got, what do we got? And sometimes what, and, and there's a whole bunch of different processes by which these, these story ideas and scripts go from being in the vault to actually being turned into a writable uh, script. So this script, the A plot script, I should clarify, was actually an idea sold to Paramount all the way back in season one of TNG, which is kind of apropos considering what we're doing over on, uh, over on Mondays. And so they, there were several people involved who were just trying to show this script over and over and over and over, uh, which is another thing that can happen and, and will happen. I'll talk about this in other instances as well, where someone basically champions a script idea and it just be, keeps being like, eh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. And the funny thing for me is when they finally, finally, finally did it here, it was mostly for that all-important budget reason. Because they were like, Ugh, we need scripts and we need to not be hiring lead staff writers for this. Uh, okay, you. P pull something out. And they're like, here! <laughs> what about this script? Okay, fine. Here, whatever. Make it happen. And I mention that because while it's reasonably well ex executed, and you could probably forget about how silly the A-plot is because of the character dynamic between Bashir and O'Brien. Don't worry, I'll talk about that. Ultimately... It is a very silly and, frankly, bad story, the storyteller one. It's reasonably well executed, and, and again, the, the character moments help it, but if you just sit back and look at the events, it's like, wow, that's a lot like, that's a lot like season one TNG, isn't it? So, <clears throat> let me go ahead and talk about the A-plot first, because I've already led into that. Obviously, I just referenced O'Brien and Bashir. Now... This is, I don't think this is much of a spoiler, so it doesn't really belong in the spoiler category, but this is definitely, uh, this is definitely the beginning of the two of them starting to properly interact. Now, I mentioned briefly, all the way back in Q-less or whatever the hell it was, the idea, you know, there's that one scene where the two are together. That's actually the true originating point of Bashir and uh, O'Brien's interactions, and that scene, it was just the one scene, was actually the impetus by some accounts for them deciding to shove the two together in this episode. Now, there are conflicting reports about how much these two actors uh, felt about each other on the set, Alexander Sudig and Colmini, which uh, apparently I might be pronouncing wrong. I've always heard it as Colmini, so I don't know what to say about that. Anyways, uh, 
It's funny though, it, it, and I, I I don't know what to believe on that one because I don't hear anything that lends itself more towards more validity than other rumors I've heard about the actors' interactions with each other. But the characters have a lot of really great natural chemistry, and this episode showcases that. Remember, effectively, this is their first episode together. They had that one brief scene in QLess, and that's it. This is the first time we see O'Brien and Bashir, and they just click. And it's so, it's so natural and so smooth that it's no wonder they decided to keep going with them henceforth. In fact, if anything, only a few lines that seem kind of out of character for both are really the main reasons why it, it, it doesn't just complete gold. The idea of O'Brien, who of course, they, they do some good camera work here because the, the camera's right in O'Brien's face. Bashir is back there, so Bashir cannot see O'Brien's face. And so Cole Meany does a really good performance of basically saying one thing with his voice and another thing with his face, and it's a fairly typical thing you know, in terms of uh, production of a, a visual work, but we get to see how he really is thinking about this whole thing, and yet he's forcing himself to be nice and polite in terms of his tone and how he's saying things back to his superior officer back there in the back. It's good stuff. I, I don't have much else to say about it. It's good stuff. Now... um I, I want to talk about the fact. They get there, and it's like, oh, my God, the Dalrock. Oh, it's coming. And then it's it's really boring. Uh, it's basically never really explained. They mention that they have a piece of an orb, and the orbs are magic, so we don't have to explain that, even though there's actually supposed to be orbs of specific things, which are much more linearly explained. But whatever. Again, TNG episode. So this magic thing is getting together, which is basically made of all the bad mojo that all these people had. And they have to get all the good mojo together to fight it back. Here's what I find interesting. Given what we know by the end of the episode about the construction of the Dalrock and what it is and why it is, it is interesting to me that the very second that the old man, the first Sarah, starts going, oh, and dying there on the, on the stage, the second that happens... It just, the, the, their counter, you know, good vibes beam goes away. And it literally starts damaging and destroying the area. Just... The second... I rewatched this, just to make sure. It happens within the space of one second. Just raw, instantly bad. You know? And that made me wonder. I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a second. So, uh, I, I've, I've talked recently about redundant dialogue, and I've been trying to avoid that myself. Here's hoping I'm succeeding. And the, the Sarah, I don't even remember his name, Sarah 1.0, uh, pulls O'Brien up and says, You must say this! And O'Brien says, I must say this! And the Sarah says, You must now say this! And then O'Brien says, I must now say this! And it's exactly as redundant and boring as it sounds. It's really impressive to have a scene where they literally have a giant 30-foot fan in the background of the set blowing over the people. They actually did. They had to redub a lot of this dialogue because it was just so much wind and death and doom. And uh, and, and they, it's dark, and they've got the lightning flashing. And they're, oh, God, and they're trying to shout over it. And it's just kind of boring. It takes effort. But one thing I find interesting is my first gut reaction, and I this, this is not a joke, I swear to God. I, I mashed... You know, I, I mashed the pause button, and I'm like, okay. And I wrote a note about the redundancy, which is what I'm telling you about now. And then, because I like to critique rather than just criticize, I'm like, okay, so why not you? Why not have a thing where the old man just kind of goes, and then O'Brien says the lines. That way, we get the idea that O'Brien is just parroting what he's saying, but 
we, the viewer, don't get the redundant dialogue, so it isn't as worn out as much. Then I hit play, and the very next line, I kid you not, is exactly that. The guy goes, and then O'Brien says, and then, just, why did you start that way? <laughs> it's confusing. So then, so then they all, they win. They push it back. I have a note here. It says, is this a, is this a town of sheep? Forgive me. Truly. But are these people really that sad and pathetic? And I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. That they need some other person to be able to put all the good vibes beams into the thing. Now, I get that he had to have the bracelet, right? But the old guy had the bracelet. And as soon as he started filling out, they're like, Oh, God, we're all going to die. Even though they were actively pushing back the doll rock as they were doing it. Again, from the people's perspectives, they were winning. They got this. And then, oh god, the old man's wound. Oh no, he's gonna kill us, he's gonna kill us, he's gonna kill us. Wait, a complete stranger is up there saying the same stuff. Clearly we're gonna win this now. Is this... I, I don't understand ritualistic mindset. Is that just what this is? People who just... Everything has to be done just so, or else it doesn't work. Is that how this works? I, I don't even freaking know. I'm sorry. Moving on, moving on. So, I have a note here. And I'm gonna be honest with you. The A-plot's just boring. I know I'm repeating myself. I'm trying really hard not to do that. But it really bears repeating because... Because aside from the O'Brien and Bashir stuff, it's meaningless. It has the same problem that a lot of... episodic science fiction has. Let me explain what I mean by this. We have a regular returning character, okay? This could apply to, to any sci-fi show. This could actually apply to a lot of fantasy shows as well. This could probably even apply to more realistic, you know, modern shows or, or historicals, okay? Regular character gets involved with some group or location or person or people that are only here for this episode, right? Now, they have a problem. Regular character can help resolve this problem. However, the only way he could properly do so is to stay there. Now, the regular character can't stay because he's a regular character, or he or she, whatever, you get my point. They are a regular character. They can't leave because then they'd be dooming the person or people or organization or whatever to doom, right? So it always boils down to the exact same situation. Rather than continuing to treat the symptom, let's treat the problem. Let's try and figure out what's actually going on and find a third answer. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, I wrote that down, God, maybe 15 minutes into the episode, not very far in, maybe 10 minutes in. Much later, in, in like the second or third act, there's a scene where O'Brien says, well, I can't stay here, but I can't just leave them, so I've got to figure out what's causing this. And when, an episode, when a character in an episode flat out states the formulaic pattern, you know we have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> uh, so this is the obvious dilemma and it's not a dilemma, I want to make that clear this is not a dilemma it would be a dilemma if he had to choose between giving up his life or leaving these people behind that would be a dilemma this is not a dilemma this is, alright, hang on, I've got to fix this <clears throat> now I want to give special praise once again because at least this is Deep Space Nine now what I mean by that is many times in the next seven years well, okay Seven years of uh, 
of, of episodes, not seven years real time. We'll be going through this show and showcasing how DS9 took a bad situation or a not good situation or a crap situation and said, yeah, let's try something. Let's try to make something out of it. And turned what would have been a crap episode into a much better one. Because as I said, this is not actually a bad episode. And God help them, they did, they did try. Every scene with O'Brien and Bashir is great. There's several others. There's Well, that's not true. There's one other on the planet, and then there's like a couple other scenes that are like halfway scenes that help to kind of add to this. And it's good stuff. They're ribbing each other. Bashir especially is ribbing O'Brien, kind of like you'd see a friend ribbing another friend. And again, great natural chemistry between the two. And on top of that, it fits so perfectly because O'Brien is the O'Brien! I mean, there's a reason I named an entire Lorium after this guy and have used him as an example of this character archetype for years, long before I ever started the show. So the idea of O'Brien being the kind of person who's really uncomfortable and really upset about all of this praise and adulation and gifts and all this crap that he does not want. He's just, it, it, no, no, I don't want any of this. Come on, come on. I mean, if it'll make you feel better, fine, whatever, I guess. I don't know. It's so human, and it helps salvage it. Especially when Bashir basically is literally like poking him in the ribs with a, with his elbow, like, come on, you know. There's even this great bit where these three women come in, and this is act this should be horrible, because it's like, eh, they're presenting themselves to you. Now, they never define the nature of the <clears throat> service that is implied. They could have been just... I don't want to use that phrase. They could have been just uh, here for pleasure which is pretty disgusting, frankly. They could have been uh, potential brides or potential uh, you know, dates for future mating, that kind of a thing. I don't know. But the whole point is, a scene that should have been like, ah, was at least salvaged by Bashir being like, no, no, chief, I think they're here for to offer their services to you. And then O'Brien's like, oh, God, he just flips the hell out about it in a wonderfully human down-to-earth way, very O'Brien way, which helps salvage what is otherwise a fairly uncomfortable scene. Uh, that reminds me, though, there's something else I want to talk about really quick here. Um, so, the Sarah's a king in the more traditional archetype of corrupt singular ruler type. And I want to stress the way I say that, because sometimes, usually fiction only portrays kings in one of two ways. They're either the righteous noble lords who are trying to do their best by their people, uh, see Aragorn, um, Simba over in Lion King, you know, good examples of that, or they're a corrupt fat, you know, sitting on the spoils of other people kind of a situation. See dozens of works of fiction for that. This feels like the latter to me. Now, I know that that's not the intent, both from the original script and from the one that was eventually doctored into this episode. By the way, I apologize if you can hear the bird outside the window. There's not a lot I can do about that, except go out and kill it. So, it's okay. It's a Nazi bird. It's okay. Um, the idea here is that the whoever the Sarah is gets gifts and praise people come by can you pray can you bless my baby i just want to talk a few a few moments of your time please i have an issue with this and blah 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 they are the worst kind of negative corrupt king type character archetype because in this case usually the negative corrupt evil king is someone that is hated by their people 
But in this case, the people, again, sheep, are all like, oh, God, yes, you're wonderful and amazing, and we owe our very existence to you in a very literal and functional way once a year. So, of course we'll give you all these gifts. Of course, it's basically a tithe, really. They say the word gifts. What they mean is taxes. It's just they didn't. he didn't have to send someone out to break anybody's knees to collect it. In fact, O'Brien was like, no, no. But again, that's O'Brien. Remember, there's a guy who I'm just going to refer to as Killer because I never bothered to remember his name because he's not really that much of a character, who was actively willing to, and this is where he gets his name from, kill in order to gain this position. Now, the episode, the, the acting and the directing frame this as if he, you know, his, his, his pride is pricked and he must prove himself worthy of this position. But the way the episode is actually constructed, if you take yourself out of it for a second and look at it from a purely intellectual and distant mindset, what you see is a man who is willing to kill. I want to restress that part because he did attempt murder. First degree murder, by the way. Let's, let's get into that. In order to be a king. And he gets away with that. He succeeds. He doesn't kill O'Brien, but he gets to be king. He gets all the gifts, all the, the silk cloths and the people fawning over him. And the women standing up in line to be his. You, you see why this kind of bothers me? And he just gets away with that. That's the third solution. They don't actually find an answer. They just find some other patsy who can keep this cycle going. And you know what really bothers me? Ignoring the fact that this is all kind of demeaning and disgusting and inhuman. This is a wasted story. There's an interesting idea somewhere buried deep in the nuggets of this episode. If you really dig in there, you can find the core kernel of an idea that could have sprouted into something great, and that idea is people are naturally conflictory, okay? It is the nature of sentient and sapient beings to have competition and contradiction with one another. Sometimes that's simple rivalry, sometimes that's competitive nature, sometimes it's aggressive, sometimes it's murderous, we have wars and fighting and conquests, baseball, and social dynamics, trying to prove you're the strongest kid on the playground, all that crap, all sits under that same general category. We as a people, and this applies to fictional races as well, are a conflictory people. Now, solving that problem has been something that some fiction takes in some directions and some fiction takes in others. You know, you've got the usual dystopian, everyone must be the same kind of bullcrap, right? This episode, the kernel of the idea here, is that they decided to focus all that negativity and all that internecine and literally, physically, well, metaphorically, physically, God, I don't know. Let's go with physically. Physically manifest an external threat. And that external threat is regular and repeating, and it comes back as long as those conflictory feelings and thoughts are there. Actually, I'm not sure if they mentioned that last part, but it would make sense to me, because the idea then is, if a state was ever reached where these people have true harmony and co cooperation with each other, there would be no Dalrock. It wouldn't show up. But it does show up every year, because they're people. And so they have something to unite them regularly. They have something to fight against regularly. What is the most simplest and easiest and most provably um, successful method by which you unite a people? 
you give them a big external threat to look at. I mean, we just played, uh, this is actually about a couple months ago now, we, we just played through Wolfenstein 2, the new Colossus, right? And what we see in that is a huge disparity of people from, uh, from France, from Britain, from, from Mexico, from Argentina, uh, from Morocco, and of course from the States, and, and the people in the States who didn't agree with each other and who didn't like each other. And you know what they all do? They all unify. They've all got their issues, they've all got their problems, and if this was a normal peacetime, they'd probably be arguing or ranting or yelling or maybe even going to violence against each other. But they got a big, nasty threat to unite against, so they are a team. It's an interesting idea to try and pattern that, to try and make that a regular thing. Now, the funny thing is, let's talk about the B-plot. I don't have much else to say about the A-plot other than that. The killer gets away with everything and becomes king! Oh, actually, I do have one other thing to talk about. Excuse me. So, uh, several points in Star Trek history, there's this thing... And DS9 is especially bad about this. Don't mistake me. I do love Deep Space Nine. I love this show. I really do. But one thing that is true through almost the entirety of Deep Space Nine's run is that it was under the, what I have heard referred to, I think Sci-Fi Debris coined this frame, uh, phrase, the wallpaper-paced music era of Star Trek. I've talked about that over in Basics in Star Trek Voyager. In fact, I've actually talked about that several times over in Voyager. Now, you might be like, how's that relevant to DS9? Well, in addition to the fact that most of the music is fairly generic, the main problem is that it's also very formulaic. Because there's one thing, and I, I apologize. If, if this is going to bother you, please mute me for the next minute. I mean that with total sincerity. Because this is one of those things I've noticed that if I point it out, people will start noticing it and it will bother them. So if you don't want to start noticing this, Go ahead and mute me for about the next minute or so, okay? That's your warning. Almost every time they do a before the credits break, and this is true for most of DS9's run, as they do the thing, there's just this sort of swell of the music sting in the background. It happened at least twice that I'd note that I significantly noticed in this episode. And both times it was in a moment that wasn't actually a big deal. And that's why they do it, because they need to have those commercial breaks, but sometimes a story doesn't have a natural break point, so they need to make one happen. There are some very egregious examples of this in the future of DS9. I'll point them out as we go. But there are at least two moments where they were like, what do we do now? I don't know. Fade to black. And it's out of place, because it's basically someone, like, you can just basically picture someone jumping in and being, and shoving something into the camera and being like, look, look, it's a commercial break. Okay, back to your story. Oh, my God. Let's talk about the B-plot. So the B-plot is very minorly thematically connected to the A-plot in such a minor way that I actually wouldn't be surprised if this was completely unintentional. Remember, the A-plot is all about a king setting himself up as a kingship because he's a king and leading a bunch of sheep around in order to try and defeat the Dalrock. I mean, that's that's the closest thing that we have to an actual theme of the A-plot, in my opinion, in my analysis. The B-plot is about a king, or in this case, a queen, actually. Uh, she calls herself a tetrarch. Now, what I find interesting about this, <clears throat> there's a lot of things, actually. Uh, so, obviously, she's young. Attention is made and, and brought to that. And the actress is not bad. Usually, younger actors and actresses have issues, like real issues, uh, very rarely, very rarely do you see one who actually is a decent shot. She's not bad. She's just not that great. 
But she is a young leader who has been forced to take charge by whatever, you know, maybe they didn't understand the whole primogenitor thing. I, I don't know. I don't know. Point being, however that works, she is now in charge of the Lulu clan, and they are in a state where they are almost ready to go to war with the others. Now, pause for a moment. This is a good time to mention that I like the B-plot a lot better than the A-plot. This is also a good time to mention that I find this very realistic. Remember, one of those recurring themes in early DS9, which we've already seen at least twice, arguably three times, at the, well, excuse me, four times now as of this point, I forgot how far we in we are, is that the Bajorans, having successfully thrown off the Cardassians, are now at the point where they no longer have that big external threat, and now they're all at each other's throats. They just kind of want to be left alone. And there's going to be a lot of politicking, a lot of infighting, and that will continue to be a trend in the future. I don't mind spoiling. So the idea that these two Bajoran clans are basically willing to go to war over, what was it, like five acres or something like that? It's not, that. No, that's too small. They say the amount of space. It's not a lot. It is a relatively small chunk of land. And I also really love how the border dispute makes perfect sense. We've actually had those kind of problems in real life. The border dispute is all centered around a river. You know, 90 years ago, before the occupation even, they had this treaty. That's your land, this is our land, the, the river defines the border. And again, rivers being used as a borders makes a lot of sense, especially when you don't really understand how rivers drift over time. And most people don't. Or at least I should say didn't. Uh, in, in older times, in older history, and that has caused problems. Now, in this case, it's, it's more than just a j gradual drift sort of a situation like we've seen in real life. In this case, someone actually showed up, the Cardassians, dammed the river and completely re reset it so that the river started doing this thing. They even show a picture of it later in the episode. So now, all of a sudden, you know, the Cardassians are gone. It's like, well, that's our land. We defined this as the river. It's right there in the contract. And she's like, well, then, no, that should be our land. Fighting, fighting, etc. Now, I make fun, but all of this makes perfect sense to me. This is the kind of thing that people would actually be up in arms on, would actually be willing to kill and die for. Because land, as much as I don't fully agree with the concept, is something that is almost universally considered very valuable. And to just lose it without a fight? That's unacceptable. Then you add into the fact that she's young. I bet you thought I was going to say she's a girl, didn't you? No, it's, it's not her gender that matters. It's her age. She is young. Multiple times in the episode, she goes out of her way to basically be aggressive or obstinate or, um, oh, you just think I'm a such and such, right? Very defensive because she's young. She's inexperienced. And both of those things combine to make her not a very good leader. And I think she knows that. And so she goes ahead and tries to get along with Jake and Nog. And she admits towards the end of the episode she did this specifically to get a mind into Benjamin Sisko. Now here's where the episode does some good stuff. Because it never they never say outright why she wanted to learn more about Mr. Benjamin Sisko. The one I usually just refer to as Sisko. So if I say Sisko from now on, I'm referring to the Elder, not Jake, okay? And it's because... At least I, I interpret it as she needed someone to have as an example. Her parents are dead. The Cardassians killed them. 
and now she's in charge of our tribe, and now there's a big issue. And it is a big issue. This is land. This is value. This is future of her tribe. And as she points out, and this is at least theoretically or potentially possible, being seen as weak now can really come back and bite her in the ass in the future. So she needs to be careful about this. Her first major negotiation is Tetrarch, especially with people that they have historically had bad dealings with, right? I shouldn't say bad, you know, aggressive, hostile rivalries. Again, that whole internecine thing, which I suppose is another theme now that I'm thinking about it. So she wants someone to use as a role model, someone to think about this. Now the funny part, and this is again where the episode gets a little funny and a little subtle, is that she deliberately allowed Jake and Nog, who just saw a pretty girl who they wanted to hang out with, and she actually gets the advice and the knowledge and, and the understanding that she needs to deal with the situation from Nog. I like that. On the one hand, it is a little silly that someone who is literally the leader of entire people has to have the concept of a negotiation explained to her because she acts as if it's this alien idea. Now, Nog doesn't say the word negotiation, nor does he say the word trade, but that is what he means. They want that land back, so they have to be willing to give something in, in exchange for it so that both sides can have some kind of mutually beneficial situation rather than just give or take. How about give and take? Just a thought, right? Now, that is the only thing I find questionable about it. But I'm willing to give them a little bit of slack because I don't think the Cardassian doom camps really did, or, or, or the Bajoran resistance really did a lot of proper education into social and economic dynamics during the occupation, which I remind you ended less than a year ago. Uh, at this point, this would have been like... Oh, God, like five months ago, something like that, as of this point? Very recently. So she definitely grew up during that occupation. So willing to give a little slack on that one. So I also want to say that this episode does touch on that whole young leaders being a problem thing. I actually was originally going to go into this whole spiel about real-life young leaders and how many times that's been a problem for us. In real life, when a, when a 10-year-old or a 14-year-old became king or queen or emperor or empress or sultan, I decided not to. Ultimately, it'd just be me hashing the point over and over again, and history has proven this so true, it's not even silly. It's such a commonly acceptable thing that, of course you understand what I'm talking about. Right? So... <clears throat> I want to say really quick that I do really love, once again, uh, Jake and Nog. As usual, the character dynamics are starting to grow in this show. From pretty much the beginning, Quark and Odo were great, and I've pointed that out as we go through. We've also started to see two other dynamics, and this episode really hammers both of them uh, very strongly. We've got the one between O'Brien and Bashir, and we've got the one between Jake and Nog. And the Jake and Nog one has been building as well, too, then... That will end up going in a slightly different direction in the future. But I do like the dynamic between the two. They act like buddies. Not not friends. Buddies. You know, people, kids who are just hanging out and having fun. And again, I point out the hilarious age discrepancy between the actors. So very good job uh, by Aaron Eisenberg and by Sir uh, Lofton in both cases. I also really love how both of them react to, I can't remember her name, differently. 
Jake is actually completely calm, almost blasé around her. I mean, he had a little, a little initial jitters, but once they actually sat down and met her, he was fine. Now, that makes perfect sense to me, because Jake is the son of Cisco. We've already seen a little bit of Cisco's parenting style, and while I disagree with him on a few things, you can kind of see how Cisco would be the kind of person to raise his son, especially in the Federation, for God's sakes, especially in Starfleet, of how you react and interact with people of whatever gender you're interested in, in this case, uh, Jake being interested in girls, right? You don't freak out, you don't flip out, you know, oh God, head over heels, you just kind of treat him like a person first, and we see where it goes from there, right? Now, the funny thing is, Nog has almost the exact opposite reaction, but in a very adorkable kind of way. Once again, credit to Aaron Eisenberg and the writing and the directing for managing to make Nog cute without making him unbearable. It would be very easy for him to slip over into just plain creepy or awkward or unpleasant territory, but they never hit that line in this episode. And it also makes perfect sense that Nog would feel that way. After all, Nog's a Ferengi. No, nope, that's not me being specious. That's me pointing out the fact that he was raised Ferengi by Rom. And once again, we could see that parallel difference between uh, raising styles and, and that undercurrent theme of you know who you look up to, who you, who you rely upon in order to go forward. Nog even gets upset as Jake keeps going back to Cisco over and over because Nog himself can't really go to Rom as a source of inspiration or as a source of strength. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but let's just say the Nog-Rom thing's going to come up again in a really great scene. One of my favorite scenes in the whole show, uh, much later in the series. So, moving on. Um, now, one other thing I want to say. I've actually had a note. Again, I didn't have much to say about this episode. One last thing I want to say here. Uh, towards the end, Nog decides to break into security to steal Odo's bucket, to put some oatmeal in it and splash it on Jake, to freak him out so he can get them both to laugh, especially her, right? Point of note, Jake is pretty much just chill the whole time around her, with only a couple of exceptions. What I find interesting about Nog is he starts out with that completely nervous, oh god, what do I do? But as she starts to reach back, as they start to develop an actual rapport, Nog, I don't want to say he relaxes, it's more like he becomes a little bit more himself. Like he feels more comfortable talking to her, or trying trying things to interact with her, like, like they're actually friends or whatever, right? It's an interesting thing, and you see it kind of develop throughout the course of the episode. The, the bucket thing is pretty much the culmination of that. And it is very Ferengi, and again, not being specious. It's just interesting from that cultural mindset, because... You can see the idea, the mentality, right? Okay, my, my friend is, is very upset and hurt about something, and I really just want to make her laugh. I really just want to get a smile on her face. What do I do? Well, it's okay. I've got this security chip, and I've got this thing, and I'm going to do this whole practical joke thing. Yay, here we go, right? Hell, I could see people. Excuse me, people. I'm saying that wrong. Uh, human people doing that. In fact, just to really hammer the point in, we have seen human people do that. Jake and Nog have actually done pranks already as of now within this show, so it's very in character. I don't have much else to say about this one. Kind of forgettable except for the B-plot, which is funny that I say that because the B-plot is the one I completely forgot. 
I do hope to see you guys next time. I'm signing off as Random Guy, talking about DS9 in front of a snow background.